It's nearly 12 o'clock, and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT. On 100.1 FM, we are your public radio station, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where it's 44 degrees under a light rain. Out at the airport, they have 83% humidity, calm winds, and 10 miles of visibility. The Weather Service is calling for more rain today and overnight as well. Southeast winds to 15, gusts to 25. For tonight, the rain could be heavy at times, possibly one or two inches. Low around 48 overnight. Southeast winds continuing and coming up to 30, gusting as high as 40 miles per hour tonight. Coming up on the Midday Report, bears have been roaming through town today. The storm has taken an emotional toll on people in Hooper Bay. And our representatives assess disaster recovery priorities. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Airports in Central and West Florida are suspending operations as Hurricane Ian closes in. Hundreds of thousands of air travelers stand to be affected. At Tampa International Airport, the Vice President of Operations, Adam Bouchard, says closures will begin soon. Starting at 5 o'clock tonight, there will be no uh, more arrivals or departures, and our goal is to have all of our ramp areas clear so there will be no commercial or cargo aircraft on the ground here in Tampa. Hurricane Ian has regained strength over the past few hours. The National Hurricane Center says a storm has topped sustained winds of 120 miles per hour. Still uncertain where the storm will make landfall, but Ian's turning toward the peninsula at 10 miles per hour and expected to further slow, which means heavy amounts of rain that lead to life-threatening flash floods, widespread power outages, and property damage. The National Hurricane Center says that through Thursday, Ian's expected to generate anywhere from 5 to 16 inches of rain. Isolated totals could reach 2 feet and 8 to 12 feet of coast storm surge. Tornadoes are also a possibility through tomorrow. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports on the federal response. President Biden is warning residents to heed the orders of local officials and be prepared to evacuate. I know our hearts are with everyone who will feel the effects of this storm, and we'll be with you every step of the way. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says the storm will slow down to five miles per hour by the time it reaches land. That's not good news. Floridians are going to experience the impacts from this storm for a very long time. President Biden has spoken with several local mayors as preparations intensify. He had not yet spoken with Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, an outspoken critic of his administration. The White House insists politics were not a factor. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The White House. The state of emergency takes effect in Georgia Thursday morning. Governor Brian Kemp issued the order today. 
Russian officials claim that the regions they occupy in Ukraine overwhelmingly want to join Russia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticized the votes as part of a diabolical scheme. Secretary Blinken accuses Russia of forcing local populations out of Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine, busing in Russians and installing puppet governments. He says it's all part of an effort to annex territory in violation of the U.N. Charter. We and many other countries have already been crystal clear. We will not, indeed we will never, recognize the annexation of Ukrainian territory uh, by Russia. The secretary adds that Ukraine has, in his words, the absolute right to defend itself throughout its territory, and the U.S. will continue to supply weapons to help Ukraine do just that. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. Local law enforcement is urging the public to be vigilant after two groups of bears were seen hanging around town. Three bears, a sow and cubs, were seen by Maine Elementary just before 7 a.m. this morning, according to the Kodiak Police Department. The group was later seen swimming across the channel to Holiday Island, according to KPD's Facebook page. However, another group of bears was seen going up Pillar Mountain by Cope Street near downtown at around 8.30 this morning. The Kodiak Police Department is working with Alaska Wildlife Troopers and officials from Fish and Game to monitor the bears. They are also reminding the public to give the bears lots of space if they are spotted in town. For KMXT, I'm Terry Haynes. In Hooper Bay, one of the villages hit hardest by the storm that slammed the region over the weekend, school is back in session and the cleanup has begun. The immediate aftermath of the flood has begun to pass, but residents of the 1,300-person village are just beginning to reckon with the emotional toll of the storm and what that means for their future. KYUK's Will McCarthy reports. At the boat ramp on the Pahiak Slough, John Rivers is checking on the damage to his boat. It's one of the many vessels that was ripped from its anchor by a storm unlike anything western Alaska has ever seen. But Rivers, in some ways, wasn't surprised. His grandfather told him many years ago that this storm would come. The elder told us long ago, this will happen, the storm, if you're alive to see it. Oh yeah, I didn't see it, Grandpa. After seeing that storm... It's like, what's next? That's the question that's on everybody's mind as Hooper Bay charts its recovery. For many in the village, the storm was traumatizing. Waters rose faster and higher than anyone thought possible. Power outages threatened subsistence food stored for the winter. Here's Loretta Smith, who lost her home in the storm. I've lived through storms before, but this was the worst. The water came up so fast, and it was so high, and it, the waves, they were violent. Although many of the most immediate crises posed by the storm, such as access to electricity and shelter, have been addressed, residents of the village are still coming to terms with the raw emotions of what they experienced. I was afraid for my son oh, and my grandma, too. How will we rescue them if the water comes up? How will we save them? This emotional toll, ultimately, may be the most long-lasting damage inflicted on Hooper Bay by the storm. Although debris can be cleared and homes rebuilt, for many, a sense of security has been shattered. Families were fleeing buildings on the verge of being flooded, carrying their loved ones on their backs. 
the village was split into two by the rising waters, which turned parts of the town into literal islands in the storm. If they couldn't help each other, who would come in time to help the people of Hooper Bay? Emma Smith, who now works for the Tribal Council, said she spent most of her life in Hooper Bay. Because of the storm, she's now considering leaving. Yeah, I don't know how to swim. I don't have a boat. I'm a single parent, single grandma taking care of kids. People were not there when I was traumatized. People were not there when my roof blew away. We had to run away ourselves. Will they be there now if it happens again? I don't know. Mary Hoeschler, another lifelong resident of the village, thinks it's time the town began to consider relocating. Um, usually the water never reaches up to this thing right here. One of her main concerns is that the boardwalk, which could take people to higher ground in the event of an even stronger flood, was washed out by the storm. Even if it's rebuilt, Hoeschler says there's no guarantee it won't wash out next time, too. With the boardwalk gone, there would be no way to reach higher ground. Because on both sides of Hooper Bay, there's two sloughs. So then we're literally surrounded by water. If we do get the high waters again and we're just little islands, how are we going to get to higher grounds? 80, 90, 100 miles an hour winds and no planes cannot come. Hoeschler also fears future floods will only become worse, in part because many of the rows of dunes that protected the village from storm surges were completely washed away by this storm. The next time a flood comes, there'll be one less barrier to stop the water. Meanwhile, experts say these types of storms are becoming increasingly common as our oceans warm due to climate change. Taken together, lifelong residents like Hoeschler and Smith feel like the storm calls Hooper Bay's entire existence into question. Here's Emma Smith again, the resident who's considering leaving town. I know worry wouldn't solve any problems, but it's hard not to worry after seeing and experiencing what we went through with that storm. John Rivers buys boat at the slough, says he too is fearful for the future. He lived to see his grandfather's prediction come true, but he doesn't know what will come next. He tried to make us understand the world is about to end, but the worst are yet to come, I don't know yet. Reporting from Hooper Bay, I'm Will McCarthy. Now that President Biden has declared a major federal disaster for western Alaska after last weekend's storm, government officials are assessing the damage and their priorities for recovery. KNOM's Davis Hovey spoke with Representative Mary Peltola, Senator Lisa Murkowski, and FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell in Nome. To cap off her visit to Western Alaska, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell was able to meet with Nome residents on Saturday and hear directly from them about storm damage and their needs. She told KNOM that FEMA will support debris removal and emergency repairs over the next three to five weeks before winter hits the region. It really was eye-opening to really realize that as we're flying over these communities and being able to truly see how one exposed they are to the elements and the storm that came in and then just the extreme difficulty that it's going to bring to try to provide the needed support that's going to have to happen um, quickly over the next few weeks, but then in the long term. Representative Mary Peltola says she was very happy to be in the Nome area and to meet with locals directly. Although her time in the Bering Strait region was brief, Peltola knows from experience that rebuilding subsistence camps, replacing gear, and shipping up materials will be challenging. I've been trying to get an outboard motor um, for two years. Even with the reimbursements, it's going to be very hard for families to find the ATVs and um, snow machines and outboard motors and skiffs that they need. These are all in high demand, and we've got 
logistics issues. So it's really incumbent upon all of us to do what we can on our end to make it as painless for residents as we can. During the federal official's visit to Nome, FEMA opened up its disaster assistance portal to Alaskans affected by the recent storm. Funding is now available to local, state, and tribal governments in the damaged areas of western Alaska. The director of Alaska's Department of Homeland Security and Emergency Management, Brian Fisher, says their online assistance application, which mirrors FEMA's, opened Monday morning. He says the state's number one priority is getting western Alaskans back into safe, secure, and warm homes. Our priority with respect to the individuals and families that live out there is to remove that contaminated insulation and, and replace bellyboard, replace tin that might have been lost on folks' roofs, so uh, replace Toyo stoves if they were damaged and flooded, upright fuel tanks. Our program does allow to uh, provide financial aid to refill those fuel tanks, home heating oil tanks, if, if they were lost or spilled in the disaster. Senator Lisa Murkowski was on the ground in Golovin and Elam last week where she saw asphalt roads peeled back, houses moved hundreds of feet, and all kinds of storm impacts like significantly exposed permafrost. She says she wants to remove the cost-share stipulation from the federal disaster funding issued by the president. I think our push needs to be to, to ask for additional relief by way of assistance with the cost-share waiver. Uh, I noted that uh, that the president had provided for 100% of cost reimbursement for 30 days to help with, I believe, debris removal. Beyond those 30 days, FEMA Administrator Chriswell says her agency is prioritizing a plan to provide assistance to individuals and to rebuild infrastructure in western Alaska for the long term. But she also wants to be better prepared for future storms. Reporting in Nome, I'm Davis Hovey. A recent underwater discovery on the west side of Prince of Wales Island shows that people have lived in what we now know as southeast Alaska for at least 10,000 years. And as Claire Strempel reports for KTOO, they also think this discovery helps to prove that North America's earliest human inhabitants came down the coast. What civilization needed to take hold was fish. Lots of them. Generally, scientists, you know, think that you have to have agriculture to develop a civilization. That's Sea Alaska Heritage Institute President Rosita Worrell. I think what we see here is that the indigenous people in develop the technology to harvest, you know, significant uh, numbers of fish. So, you know, you can see the beginning uh, of uh, what turns out to be a very complex culture. Sea Alaska partnered with the archaeologists who recently found a fish weir more than 500 feet underwater in Chacon Bay near Prince of Wales Island. The weir is a rock barrier that was once in an intertidal zone. It redirected fish so that people could catch them. Weirs are some of the earliest forms of fish traps, and they're still used today. Researchers say this particular fish weir is evidence that indigenous people lived in Alaska at least 10,000 years ago. Its depth gives away its age because scientists know how long ago that piece of ocean floor was land. Worrell said the discovery also supports the coastal migration theory. It was previously thought that the occupation of the Americas was through an interior corridor, but uh that corridor wasn't opened up until later. Archaeologist Kelly Montiglioni says scientists who think people migrated by land argue that there aren't enough archaeological sites to prove the coastal theory. But that's because we haven't really looked. 
You know, the amount of work we've done is so small in comparison to what's been done terrestrially. Monteleone had been looking for the weir for more than a decade after something that looked like a fish weir showed up on a sonar image. The shadow on the screen was in the right shape. But until we could actually get eyes on it, we couldn't confirm it was really a weir. She teamed up with Sea Alaska to locate the weir as part of her graduate research. It wasn't easy. She tried looking 10 years ago, but found out she'd been looking in the wrong place. This year, she found it right away, with a camera mounted on an underwater drone. She knew it was a weir because of the way the rocks were stacked, in a pile that wouldn't have formed like that naturally. I felt so validated after spending, you know, 12 years of my life talking about this um, potential fish weir. Uh, I've published about it in multiple places. Uh, I've presented on this all over the world. And so to finally find it, it was just so exciting. She'll continue her underwater research with the Sea Alaska Heritage Institute in southeast Alaska next summer. She'll be tracking down more archaeological sites that explain how and when the earliest people got here. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Claire Strempel. After three years of negotiating, leaders of a pilot's union have approved a tentative agreement with Alaska Airlines. The tentative agreement was announced last Friday by the Airline Pilots Association International. Union leaders had said the existing contract was lacking compared to other airlines in several areas, including compensation, scheduling flexibility, and quality of life. The tentative agreement increases pay rates, retirement contributions, and compensation for flight reassignments. It also extends parental leave to both mothers and fathers and allows mothers to continue earning seniority the basis of a pilot's flight schedule, during maternity leave. There were also some more minor changes like improving hotel locations and added travel flexibility for pilots in training. Back in April, nearly 100 pilots picketed at Anchorage's Ted Stevens International Airport. A pilot shortage led to flight cancellations throughout the early summer, although Alaska Airlines said picketing was not a factor. About a dozen people were evacuated from their homes on Gastineau Avenue in Juneau Monday night after a landslide came down. The slide damaged a few homes and debris blocked the street. The Red Cross set up a temporary shelter at a downtown fire station. KTOO's Yvonne Crumry went there and has this story. As Red Cross volunteers stack snacks and water on a table, Monica and Travis Johnson sit in the corner with their two young children. Travis was at work when it happened. The road was blocked by a tree, so he couldn't get to his family by car. I couldn't get up the road because of the avalanche, and so I had to come around and park down below and go up the steps by the glory hole and get my family and bring them back down. Monica is holding their baby daughter while their son plays with toy trucks. And then they told us that we would um, be told how they were going to house us. Um, I don't know for how long exactly. We were just hanging out, yeah. waiting out of the rain. Britta Toninson is with the Red Cross. So right now, this is the evacuation center, and we have Red Cross is bringing some snacks and water and things just to kind of slow things down until we get some information, and then we'll go from there and provide some support to the families impacted by this displacement. Virginia John Daniels and her partner came to the shelter with their dog and their cat. Yeah, but definitely grab the animals and some food for them too. You know, and just print up this will hit our place, use everything we've we worked for. John Daniels has been at her place for five years. She used to work for the Red Cross and said it was very different to be on the other side of emergencies. 
the Red Cross and the city and borough of Juneau planned to offer hotel vouchers for the small group who had been displaced. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Cremery. Read Diverse, Read Indie on Insight Daily Radio. Conversations with today's most influential authors from the world of independent publishing. Shorn, book one of the Sky Seeker series, is an intelligent and captivating new fantasy novel. Author Larissa N. N. Davila, also a child psychologist, tells a story of oppression and resilience, the high cost of vengeance, and the malleable nature of truth. Through vivid characters and a believable world, she explores the question, are we destined to identify ourselves by the scars others give us? We spoke with Davila about her new novel that Kirkus Reviews called a grand-scale fantasy with remarkable depth and characters that are emotionally relatable and endearing. Being a psychologist is very helpful for writing fiction, again, because you have a deep understanding of of human behavior, which is what good literature is, is really about, and understanding the human condition. But what I hope they see is the characters um, resonate with them in some way, because the characters are experiencing the kinds of conflicts um, that we all experience, those agonies around being able to fit in in our society or being seen um, in some way as, as not adequate or feeling shame and guilt for things that we've done or things that people have put on or done to us or wondering whether we can be more than the scars that others have given to us. That's author Larissa N. N. Davila on her new fantasy novel, Shorn, which is available wherever books are sold. Learn more about Shorn and the Skyseeker series at StoneRavenPress.com. Read Diverse, Read Indie is presented by the Independent Book Publishers Association. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to Tuesday, the 27th day of September. It is the year 2022. The sun rose today at 8.05. It will set again at 7.53. That will give us 11 hours and 48 minutes of glorious daylight, a loss of 4 minutes and 56 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record low for this date was 26 degrees, set in 1992, and our record high was the inverse, 62 degrees, set in 1993. Looking at our local tides, we have a high tide coming up this afternoon at 332 on the east side. That will be a 9.3 foot tide, followed by a low tide at 948 p.m., a slight minus tide, minus three tenths. Over on the west side, you have a high tide coming up at 403 this afternoon. That will be a 15.4 foot tide in Larson Bay followed by a low tide at 1024 this evening of minus one foot. Look for rain starting this afternoon. High near 53, southeast winds 15, gusting to 25 today. The rain continuing tonight could be heavy at times overnight. They're talking about between one to two inches of accumulation overnight. Low of 48 tonight and southeast winds to 30, gusting to 40. Well, let's check what the Alaska Department of Fish and Game has to tell us. 
This is the Alaska Department of Fish and Game with Kodiak Commercial Salmon Fishery Advisory Announcement Number 38. This announcement was issued at 10 a.m. September 22nd. There will be a 54-hour commercial salmon fishing period from noon Sunday, September 25th to 6 p.m. Tuesday, September 27th in the following areas. The east side Kodiak District, except the inner Ugak and outer Ugak Bay sections, remain closed. The outer Iaculik, Halibut Bay, Sturgeon, and outer Carlick sections of the southwest Kodiak District and the central and north cape sections of the northwest Kodiak district. As previously announced, fishermen are reminded that until further notice, in that portion of the northwest Kodiak and southwest Kodiak districts, south of the latitude of Cape Kuliak, Chinook salmon 28 inches or greater in length may not be retained by purseing gear in the commercial fishery and must be returned to the water unharmed. Closed waters are shown on the Kodiak area salmon statistical chart and detailed in the commercial salmon fishing regulations. Statistical charts, harvest strategies, and commercial salmon fishing regulations are available at the Kodiak Fishing Game Office. Recent salmon fishery information may be obtained by calling 486-4559. Mariners, here is your marine forecast for Marmot Island Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side. Gale warning tonight and Wednesday. South 20 will become southeast 30 this afternoon. Seas building to 9 feet this afternoon. Southeast 40 tonight. Seas building to 16 feet tonight. For tomorrow on our east side, south 20, except for north of Dangerous Cape, southeast 35, becoming south 20 in the afternoon. Seas to 15 feet tomorrow on our east side. In the Shelikoff Strait, gale warning tonight and Wednesday too. Southeast 15 today will become east 30 this afternoon. Seas building to 8 feet this afternoon. For tonight, east 35, seas to 12 feet. And for tomorrow in the Shelikoff, southeast 35, becoming east 15 in the afternoon. Seas 9 feet should subside to 5 feet tomorrow afternoon. In my hand is a list of the upcoming meetings for the Kodiak Island Borough. They include the Solid Waste Advisory Board. They will be having their regular meeting September 28th, that's tomorrow, in the Assembly Chambers at 6.30 p.m. On Friday, the Kodiak Fisheries Development Association will be having a meeting in the Borough Conference Room. That's happening at 9 a.m. on Friday. Also on Friday, the Assembly will be having a work session in the Assembly Chambers Oh, pardon me, that's Thursday. Thursday, the Kodiak Fisheries Development Association. Wednesday, the Solid Waste Advisory Board. And on Thursday, the Assembly will be having a work session, 6.30 p.m. in the Assembly Chambers. Women's Bay Service Area will be having a meeting of their board in the Women's Bay Fire Hall at 5.30 p.m. on October 4th. This next Saturday, there's a celebration of life for Bill Harrington, That's happening from 4 to 7 p.m. at Tony's. Everyone in the community is welcome. Please bring a potluck dish to share, an instrument to play if you feel like jamming, and your memories and good cheer. And they're looking forward to seeing you there 4 to 7 p.m. Saturday at Tony's. The Humane Society of Kodiak's Walk Your Dog event is this next Saturday, 10 a.m. at the Kodiak College. Join in the fun for dogs and their humans. You can pre-register online or on the day of the walk. Registration is 15 bucks. With no T-shirt, thirty bucks gets you a T-shirt. And uh, find out more details and register at www.kodiakanimalshelter.org, or contact Linda at nine zero seven six five four five seven one seven. Next Wednesday, October fifth, the Kodiak 
Amateur Radio Emergency Services Group will be offering amateur radio licensing exams. The exams will be held at Bayside Volunteer Fire Department on Wednesday. Pre-registration is required. For information, contact John Kimmel at 907-942-0741. And it's provided at no charge. The Kodiak Fishing Game Advisory Committee will be having an election and meeting. That's happening Monday, October 10th. There will, there will be a meeting in the Alaska Department of Fish and Game Chiniac Conference Room. That's over at Near Island, 351 Research Court. The purpose of the meeting is to hold elections for expired and vacant seats and to discuss the Board of Fisheries Pacific Cod proposals as well as other committee business. The meeting is open to the public. All residents of the area who attend the meeting and are of legal voting age may make nominations and vote on committee membership. On Saturday and Sunday, October 15th and 16th, the Hospice and Palliative Care of Kodiak will host a Remembrance Altar Workshop. That's at Rooted Kodiak. Sometimes the best way to move through your grief journey is through making something meaningful with your hands. Bring mementos, photos, small treasures, etc. from a past loved one, and with the guidance of artist Bonnie Dillard, you can create a beautiful piece of tribute art to hang on your wall. Hospice and Palliative Care of Kodiak will provide the space and materials for people to create a meaningful piece of art that holds memories of a lost loved one. For more information and to register, go to their website at hpck.org or call them up at 907-512-0600. Also, the Hospice and Palliative Care of Kodiak will be hosting their new volunteer training in October. Training will be on Thursday, October 20th, it's happening from 5.30 to 8 p.m. for all volunteers, and Saturday, October 22nd, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. for direct care volunteers. For more information and to register, please visit the hpck.org website or give them a call at 907-512-0600. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 1220, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org.